Last week, we uh, looked at this, this uh, parable of uh, the, the wineskins and the old wine, which uh, the, the metaphors of that uh, parable apparently uh, went over some of the heads of, of uh, some of our younger people. I apologize about that. All I can say is you need to work on your reflexes so that you can catch them next time rather than let them go over your head. Uh, if anybody's seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, that's a... Uh, Drax's way of catching metaphors. So anyhow, we looked at, at that passage and we saw that the gospel has the power to radically change us. The gospel has the power to radically change us. It, it makes us new, it converts us to Christ, and it fills us with joy. Those were the, the powerful demonstrations of the gospel that we saw last week. And we also saw last week that there is some evidence that Jesus' ministry is not exactly being received enthusiastically by all people. We're discovering more and more conflict, more and more suspicion, more and more uh, doubts that Jesus is uh, really the, the person we should all be excited about. And this week, we're actually going to see those tensions and that conflict come to a boiling point. The title of our sermon is Irreconcilable Differences. Many of us have heard the term irreconcilable differences as the reason for a divorce, right? Well, we are uh, coming to the point in the evaluation of certain people in Judea of irreconcilable differences with Jesus and his ministry. And they are not wrong in their... Um, diagnosis, that there are irreconcilable differences between themselves and with the ministry of Jesus. What is the, the, the sad reality, though, is that they chose their differences rather than the reconciliation that Jesus came to offer. And so what, what, are the, what is the source of the irreconcilable differences? If we, if we look at all of these stories, there's been a little bit of conflict since the beginning of chapter 2, and it involves uh, uh, accusations about Jesus' ministry not uh, doing what the law, that they have, have uh, learned from the Old Testament, not doing the law as they expected the law to be done. So they, they, they see Jesus forgive sins, and they're like, well, no one can forgive sins except for God. And that's absolutely true. But, but the question needs to be raised, could, could the person who raises the paralytic be God in the flesh? But that question was outside of the realm. So they saw a legal infraction, and then we saw fasting. And fasting was, was something that, though it was not uh, prescribed as a law, it was, it was a custom that had become so... Uh, natural and so secondhand and so much a part of the religious expression of, of this group called the Pharisees that they began to wonder, well, if you're not fasting, maybe you're not really uh, belonging to, to true Israel. And now this week, we get into a couple controversies over the Sabbath and the law of, of the Sabbath and whether Jesus is following that law or not. So what we have is a group of people who are accusing Jesus of not following the law, not following the law correctly. And so what we really have in this conflict is this irreconcilable difference between what we would call a dedication to legalism versus a commitment to a, a life with Jesus. And these two different paths 
are showing themselves to be irreconcilable. That a, that a life that is committed to, uh, to following the law and a life that is committed to being with Jesus, there is a, a tension. Now, it's not the tension of whether we obey the law or not. It is a tension of how we put these things together. And so the, the main point of today's passage is that this commitment to what we're going to call legalism and a life with Jesus have irreconcilable differences. Okay? Legalism and a life with Jesus have irreconcilable differences. So we have to define our terms. What, what do we mean by legalism? Legalism is this belief inside of us that you earn your goodness by following rules. You earn your goodness by following rules. That's how we're defining legalism. Legalism is earning your goodness by following rules. And so there are kind of two pictures that just seem to be almost living inside of our subconscious when it comes to how we uh, establish that we're good people. And they're both grounded in legalism. And I think these images do a good job of showing how pervasive legalism is. The first is this view of life as a ladder. Life as a ladder. That the way that we get to the good life, that the way that we get to salvation, that the way that we get to heaven is really about scaling up a ladder. Going up one step of moral goodness to the next step of moral goodness to the next step of moral goodness. And then at the top of that ladder, to those people who have gone up every step, they are welcomed into heaven. That is, that is the idea of, of the ladder. Now this ladder, whether you have a, a belief in heaven or not, is still uh, operating in a lot of people's minds. We, we think that we are progressing from one step of goodness to the next step of goodness to the next step of goodness, and whether the reward that we have in our mind is heaven or whether the reward in our mind is some other earthly uh, gift, some sort of merit, uh, some sort of I deserve this because I have lived the good life, I have stepped one, two, three, four, five, we are still living with legalism. And the picture is the latter. There's a second picture that a lot of people uh, have in their mind, and it's the latter of a scale. And the way that the scale works is we say, okay, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I can't get at past maybe step five or six of that ladder, right? I'm not Mother Teresa. Just, just not going to be me. However... When I look at it, I think I've done enough good things that my scale tilts towards the good. And because I can count up good things and I believe that they are more than the bad things I have done, I am a good person on balance. And that is why uh, I, I think that I have earned goodness. I have followed more rules than I've broken and therefore the scales tip towards the favor of calling me a good person. And since I'm a good person, whatever the reward of being a good person is, I, I ought to be in the running. Make sense? So these are two pictures that uh, just kind of live in our, 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 our subconscious of how we answer the question, am I a good person? We either look at how far we're up the ladder or we look at this scale and we always see the scales pointing Maybe gradually, but still pointing to, well, we're a good person because there's more good than there is bad in me. But legalism isn't just an issue that we struggle with in our heart. We need to recognize that the modern church, the church in America, seems to be full 
of the marks of legalism. Seems to be full of the marks of legalism. The, 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 what is the church in the popular consciousness of, of our culture is that it is a place for do-gooders. It is a place where you get dealt guilt for not doing good, and therefore you come back and try to take your guilt away by being more faithful, more obedient, more, more bible or whatever. I mean, if you listen to, to how any sitcom talks about the modern church, they only hear rules. Now, now, they're not hearing very well, but at the same time, we should not be completely dismissive of what they're hearing. If they're catching the impression that church is all about being a do-gooder, then maybe we haven't really put in the front of the public what the church is all about, which is Lilo, living in and living out the good news of Jesus. And if there's any question that legalism is rampant in the church, just roll the tape over the last two or three years and look at some of the, pardon my French, crap that we have divided over. We've divided over masks. We've divided over politicians. We've divided over how to respond to racial reconciliation. All of these things became litmus tests of whether you're true or not true. That's legalism. And so we need to deal with legalism. And we need to deal with legalism because Jesus had to deal with legalism. So today, I I want us to go through this text, and we're going to see three reasons why life with Jesus is irreconcilable with legalism. And this will be a, a, a sermon that will, that will search our hearts and perhaps call us to repentance. But it is going to call us to repentance to what is good. It will not be a repentance that hopefully is begrudging to you, but it will be a repentance of joy. So there are three reasons why life with Jesus is irreconcilable with legalism. And the first that we see in this, in this passage is that life with Jesus is about relationship before rules. Life with Jesus is about relationship before rules. And so we're looking at that, that first story at the end of chapter 2 where the disciples are walking through a grain field and they're picking up grain and they're eating it. And the issue is that they are doing this on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is is a very important law in the Old Testament. It's one of the top ten. It's commandment number four. And the the, the Sabbath commandment from God is that we are to do no work on the Sabbath. It is to be a day of rest, a day of assembly, but it is to be a day of no work. And so the key question that comes in this first story is, is the disciples picking grain as they're walking through count as work? Is this, the, is this work according to the Sabbath? And there's a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees see the disciples picking this grain, and they, their answer is very simple. Yes, that is doing work. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees uh, literally mean the separators, their, their kind of ideology, they, were, they, they had some political influence, they were kind of a, a political party of the day, but their, their kind of foundation of, of their approach to politics and approach to life was purity in regards to their obedience to the Torah, which is another word for the laws of Moses, uh, the Old Testament law. 
They were a very influential group of people. They, they, they walked the walk. They had an authority about them because of their, their pure and pious lifestyle. And they represented what a lot of people believed was necessary to see God finally deliver them from the Romans, which was to be a people of impeccable obedience to the law, right? Now, the Pharisees show up in the New Testament, show up in the Gospels a lot, and they're always the punching bag. But I want, I want to say something. The Pharisees are actually not bad people. They're not bad people. They are in conflict with Jesus a lot because they're off the bubble in some very substantial ways. But the Pharisees would have been the really good people, the people that you want in your neighborhood in, in the first century. They, they mowed their lawns. They, they obeyed every rule of the homeowners association. They watched the dog. They, they showed up. They were faithful. Uh, you know, they, they had a lot going on. But fundamentally, their belief was a type of legalism. They believe that God is going to rescue those who he finds to be faithful and obedient. Okay, And there's nothing particularly sinister about that. God is going to rescue the faithful. Now, their image of legalism is a little different than the scale or the, the ladder. Their image of legalism is more like a circle. And what they believed was... Uh, we need to obey the laws so that we can be inside the circle, which is where God is going to bless us, where God is going to save us. And so we do the rules to put ourselves in the circle, or we do the rules to keep ourselves in the circle where God's going to bless us. Okay? It's not quite the same as a ladder. It's not quite the same as a scale. But in the sense of the law puts me here, and keeping the law keeps me here, it is still a legalism. Okay. Now, the, the main things that kept us in the circle of, of, of the Pharisees was circumcision, the food laws, and keeping the Sabbath. Because these were very visible signs of covenant obedience. All right? And so whenever Jesus was, was violating the food laws or the Sabbath, we don't have any issues with circumcision from Jesus, but those became major flashpoints. Because violating the Sabbath meant you would be leaving that circle. You'd be leaving that circle of salvation. And so you can see why the Pharisees would be very concerned about this. Because if Jesus is not following one of these key rules, he's leading people in Israel outside of the circle. Right? And, and the, the Old Testament is very strict about the consequences of violating the Sabbath. The Sabbath had a death penalty attached to it. It was a serious law. So the, the, the Pharisees wanted to make sure that we stay inside that circle. And the way that they wanted to stay inside that circle was that they made more and more and more rules so that, that if they followed all these additional rules, then they would definitely be on the inside. It was kind of like a, a buffer, a safety buffer. So when they saw the word, that thou shall not work on the Sabbath, they said, well, we have to define the word work. And they came up with 39 more rules about what work is. And one of those 39 rules about work was you don't eat grain. You don't pick, you don't pick grain on the Sabbath. All right, That's not in the scriptures, but they recognized that as an act of work, and they said, so when the Sabbath is don't work, you can't pick grain on the, on the Sabbath. So 
uh, this is where the tension is. And Jesus is asked about why, why the, his disciples are doing this. And Jesus answers them in one of those classic Jesus ways, which are kind of tricky, kind of tricked them a little bit. And he basically says to them, yeah, you're right. You just saw my disciples eating grain. But what about David? What about David? And he reminds them of a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David takes his uh, fighting men, they're hungry, he takes them to uh, the priest, and the priest feeds them on the Sabbath the holy bread that was only lawful for the, the priests to eat. So, so there, there is a story of a law being broken, of the letter of the law being broken by David. Uh, on the Sabbath. And so what is, what is Jesus trying to do, this, do with this? He is trying to bring up the point that the Pharisees accept David. They accept David. And so they have given David some sort of exception uh, on this situation. Uh, even though it, it, it appears to violate their, their legalism, he is giving, they, they give them some kind of exception. And so his exception is, is either going to be grounded in the fact that his, his uh, people really, really needed the food. Like they, they were going to die if they didn't eat that bread. That's probably not the condition they were in. They were probably not about to die. So other, other grounds of exception could be David's title as the king of, of, the, of, of all of Israel, he has special prerogatives to at times uh, do what is necessary, and maybe that's why he violated the Sabbath. A third possibility is G, that, that David is on a mission, and his mission requires his, his people to be fed, and so by, by the, the necessity of his mission, the importance of his mission, it became a greater need or a greater uh, exception than the law itself. So, so we're basically dealing with David was given an exception even by the Pharisees because they, they love David because of either his need or his title or his mission. All right? And we're not going to spend 20 minutes trying to figure out on which one of those it is. Different commentaries go different directions. Uh, you can take that as your homework. Uh, well, what's Jesus saying? He's saying a greater David is here. A greater David is here. That's the whole premise of the argument. Whatever title you give to David as a rule for exception, I have the higher title as the Messiah, the Son of God. Whatever mission you give to David as worthy of breaking this rule, I am bringing the kingdom of God. My mission is even more critical. So, so what, is, what does Jesus say literally? He says in verse 28, that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, that is a stunning statement that Jesus makes. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we need to, need to recognize that when Jesus says the Son of Man, he is not talking about his humanity. He is actually talking about a title from the Old Testament. And why do we know he's talking about a title? Because he is making this comparison and contrast with David the King. So Son of Man is a title that shows that Jesus is in the, in the same category, in a greater category, actually, than what David was in. So if we go back to the Old Testament and we look at Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, we, we read this passage. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The only Son of Man title that could possibly anchor the claim that I am Lord of the Sabbath is if he is the Son of Man described here in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man who is given all authority, all dominion, and all glory. And so Jesus is making a staggering claim that the reason that I am allowing my disciples to eat grain is because I have an even greater claim upon the exception than did David, because I am the Son of Man. Now, that's kind of technical, but we also need to look at verse 27, because Jesus doesn't just dispute them at the level of his permission, he also disputes them at, at the level of their interpretation and use of the law. So Mark 2.27, Jesus says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus here is disputing the Pharisees' use of the law. Now Jesus is not arguing over the, the, the Sabbath law. He is not saying that the Sabbath isn't a law, that we're not supposed to keep the Sabbath. He is not violating the Old Testament law. What he is taking issue with is the Pharisees' interpretation of that law. He's taking issue with their, their creation of all of these additional rules, okay? And so he is saying that the Sabbath law is not being kept. The spirit of the Sabbath law is not being kept by the, Sabbath, uh, by the, uh, by the Pharisees. Uh, he is arguing that their rules are actually missing God's word, the purpose behind God's word. And he reminds them that the Sabbath was a gift of rest and restoration and reconnection with God. That's why the Sabbath exists. That's the reason for the law, to give man rest and restoration and reconnection with God. It was not created to be a hammer to condemn people, right? And Jesus is implicitly saying that the disciples, because they are with Jesus, are receiving the Sabbath of rest and restoration and reconnection with God. So, so the disciples are not in violation of the Sabbath. They are fulfilling the Sabbath in this ministry with Jesus because Jesus, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's make this kind of, let's step back and, and, and see the principle. The Pharisees are in conflict because they have made the rules the main thing as opposed to the purpose for the rules. And so legalism gets things backwards is basically what's happening here. Not that rules aren't important, but legalism gets things backwards. It puts rules before relationship. I once heard that there was a, a church that, uh, that was against a premarital sex. And the reason was it led to dancing. Right? No, so, so you, you, you understand that that's an example of, of, of legalism. We have lost sense of the purpose of the law, and we are just creating rules for other rules. The reason used to be that we were against dancing because it led to premarital sex, right? But we've gotten so far into our legalism that we've, we've flipped it. That is, that is not how we do it at, at Renew, all right? <laughs> 
But anyways, that's, that's the idea. Legalism gets things backwards. Legalism puts the rules before the relationship. But Jesus wants us to recognize that life with Jesus is about the relationship coming before the rules. And in this way, I would say my, my wife is very Christ-like. Okay? She married me, and then she dropped all the rules on me. <laughs> right? We blissfully moved ourselves into marriage, and then I discovered how many things I had to fix about myself. So, so, so I don't know if anyone else has married such a Jesus-like wife, um, but uh, I'm so thankful for mine. But honestly, why do you do good things for your spouse? Why, why do you do good things for your spouse? Do you do good things because you, you have to? Those, that honeydew list never gets done. The have-to list or she's going to be mad at me, that honeydew list never gets done. But the honeydew list where you're saying, this is going to let my wife know how much I love her, that honeydew list goes pretty easy, right? We do that honeydew list. And so that's really an, an, an understanding of what Jesus wants us to, to understand about the law. He wants us to, to, to do good things out of our relationship, not to get into that relationship. That's so different. In Christianity, the rules don't bring us to God. God comes to us. God brings the relationship first, okay? Whereas legalism says, earn this. Life with Jesus says, receive this. So there's an irreconcilable difference. Life with Jesus is about relationship before rules. We, we still have rules, but the reason that we do the rules and where the rules belong in our understanding of God are in a completely different place than legalism. We do the rules because our heart loves Jesus, right? There is no ladder. There is no scales to, the, to, to life with Jesus. Our obedience is out of love, not for love. And so the real rub question right now for, for all of us is this question. Have you received Jesus' love? Some of you are out there trying to earn it. Some of you are out there on the ladder. But Jesus is saying, receive it. Have you received Jesus' love? Now, the second irreconcilable difference is life with Jesus is about pursuing his presence instead of policing other people. Life with Jesus is about pursuing his presence instead of policing other people. Legalism doesn't just miss the meaning of God's word, doesn't just miss the, the connection with the relationship. Legalism also tears us apart. As we look at verses 3, 1, and 2, look at this scene. Jesus is in the synagogue. Jesus is there in the flesh. There is a man with a withered hand, and Jesus is going to heal this man. Would anybody want to be in that church service that day? 
I mean, would that not be amazing? I mean, we, we, we crave to see the movement of God. And yet, what do we read about the Pharisees in this passage? They are sitting there with their arms crossed, waiting to accuse him if he heals this man on the Sabbath. Because if he heals this man on a Sabbath, he's doing work. Do you see how the legalism has gotten to a place where it is now even tearing people apart? Their legalism has turned them from worshipers to policemen. They are waiting to cite every violation of their rules. And if anything illustrates the perversity of legalism, it's this. Legalism can police Jesus right out of the church. They are waiting to accuse him. Jesus should not be in that church. He doesn't belong. How perverse is that? But that is the product of legalism. Now, I grew up on the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, Every day at noon, it was on 38 Family Greats. And I got very familiar with my favorite policeman, Barney Fife. Uh, Barney Fife, wonderful guy, uh, but there's this one, one episode where he's actually in the church choir, and somebody in the church choir cannot sing at all. He sounds like your pastor, and he, he, he's in the choir, and he recognizes that somebody's not singing very well, and so he goes around in his police uniform trying to listen to each person so that he can shoo away the bad singer from the choir. And and that's kind of the image I have in my mind, that when, when legalism takes hold in a church, we all become policemen going around trying to figure out who's off note, Who's off the bubble? Who's saying things that, 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 that we just don't want to be said around us? That is the idea of, of, of legalism as a policeman. Now, maybe you're thinking, how, how could anybody miss Jesus in today's, in today's church? How could legalism really be as bad as it was there in, in this story? Well, I, I was reflecting just a little bit that in February this year, uh, Asbury Seminary, had what by all accounts appears to have been an amazing renewal moment where where God's presence was being powerfully felt and sensed in that community of Asbury, Kentucky. And I, being a pastor, am part of several pastor groups on Facebook, and there was long back-and-forth discussions about, is that a real renewal? Is that a real renewal? You know, I think a renewal should be this and this and this. And they had rules to to verify whether it's it's a renewal. That is an example of us missing a movement of God because of our legalism. And and, and I mean, to add to that, that revival was shut down (laughs) because we needed to go back to school. And I I understand getting good grades is, is important, but there was a revival And they actually shut it down because it became so inconvenient to the life in Kentucky. And I I mean, I I don't want to judge anybody there, but it, it does appear that we can get our life and our rules in the place of God's presence. Legalism, we we just have to accept it. It's rampant 
Uh, tribalism is, 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 is taking hold. We live in cancel culture in the church. We cancel people who wear masks. We cancel people who don't wear masks. Uh, we cancel people based on their view of public school. We've, we cancel people based on their entertainment choices. We listen to what they watch, what they listen to, and then we make this little, well, how could that person really be a Christian? I, I know that uh, there's nudity in that show, or they use the F word on that, in that movie, or what, whatever. But we use these things, and we just start putting people up and down, whether they're, they're uh, obedient or not. Our politics. I don't know how many times I've been told, you could not be a Christian and vote for this person. And I've heard that about usually both people. There's all kinds of legalism. And here's the issue. Legalism is more concerned with who is beside you than who is before you. Legalism is more concerned with who is beside you than who is before you. And as I think about legalism in the church, I, I remind myself of a story. Uh, I, I was doing door-to-door evangelism in, in one of my previous churches, and I, I met this guy, and this event this has just never left me. But I met this guy who was very evidently low economic class. He was kind of crude in his mannerisms. He was dressed not very cleanly. He was uh, maybe a little bit off uh, mentally. He, was, he, he made you a little bit nervous. And I was sharing the gospel with him, and he just broke through and he said, could I come to your church as I am right now? Not dressed very well, not acting very polished, very Christian, not necessarily knowing all of the, the, the cues and the, and the things that need to happen in church. And in and, and that moment, his question broke my heart because I knew immediately the church that I was going to, he could not come to. Because there was just so many things that would be so different than what our church thinks should be. And so I think there's a convicting question for us because here's another thing that I have happened in my own heart. Have you ever seen someone and looked at them and saw that they were someone that needs way too much work to be saved for you to do it? Do you look at somebody walking around downtown days and, and they're dressed so strangely and they're, they're participating in activities that are so outside of the norm for you that you look at them and the only thing you can say is, I wouldn't even know where to start. I don't even know what would save that person. There's, a, there's kind of a realm of people that we think are savable. That's legalism. Because we think there's a certain amount of lostness and screwed upness that, that, that they have to get through before they can hardly hear the gospel. You see, legalism gets it backwards. Legalism has this mentality that we must become pure before we can go into his presence. But what Jesus wants us to know is that life with Jesus is you come into his presence and then he makes you pure. Legalism says, get pure to get before God. Jesus says, come to me and I will make you pure. That is so much different. But which one of these are we preaching? 
Which one of these are, is our life demonstrating? What is the subtext of who we are as Christians? The world is reading it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6. Powerful words that demonstrate what I'm saying. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Did the presence of the Lord purify Isaiah? Isaiah spent his whole life being scrupulous and being a man of purity. But it did not make him pure enough to be in the presence of God. But one dramatic moment in the presence of the holy, holy, holy Lord, and Isaiah repented and left that presence purified. This is a major difference. We do not need to police one another. We need to trust the Holy Spirit to sanctify his people. Listen, our priority is to behold him. His presence will powerfully change us. Don't look at someone as outside of your ability to save. Look at that person as one whose, whose presence of Jesus could transform. There is nobody that Jesus cannot purify. There is no one that Jesus cannot save. And it is only legalism that causes us to halt. At Renew, we are committed to the core value of being worship-fueled for this very reason. We believe it is the power of worship that is going to create change and renewal. And so when we say we are worship-fueled, we are confessing that Jesus is our first love. Therefore, we are devoted to frequent, joyous, and reverential worship together. This is a core value. Let us make sure that we put no obstacle in anyone's path to enjoying the presence of Jesus. So how are you pursuing Jesus' presence? If you really want to deal with your sin problem, put yourself in front of Jesus. Let Jesus be in your room. That sin will not go undealt with. Third, life with Jesus is about compassion replacing condemnation. Life with Jesus is about compassion replacing condemnation. So we finish this scene and, and, and we have this man with the withered hand that Jesus is determined to heal. 
And Jesus sets, I think, as dramatically as possible, the contrast between legalism and the life with Jesus right here in verse 4. He said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Is it uh, lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? You see, legalism destroys our souls. It doesn't just separate us. It doesn't just confuse us. It actually destroys our souls because we have been in several synagogue scenes already in the Gospel of Mark. And the last verse of all of these stories have been a verse of wonder. How are these things being done in our presence? What is this new teaching with authority? Who is this who could even raise paralytics to walk? But how does this story end? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. How to destroy him. They watched a miracle, and all they could do was plot. Do you see the twistedness? In the presence of Jesus and of healing, they are hating. And, and, and do you see the hypocrisy? They are plotting murder on the Sabbath. Now that's a real forbidden work on the Sabbath. Generally speaking, don't plot murder, and especially don't plot murder on the Sabbath. And yet the Pharisees are so thick with anger, their hearts have been so withered by their rule-keeping and legalism that they don't even see the hypocrisy. You see, legalism withers our hearts. It takes away any sense of compassion and fills it with callousness and condemnation. How, how do we become a, a calloused-hearted people? I think we become a calloused-hearted people when we inundate ourselves with callousing uh, news and callousing stories and callousing opinions. How many of us are just drinking gallons of opinions about people who are destroying our country? about a group of people that if they come into this country, we lose everything. And what does that do to our hearts? We can look at kids in cages and not even know if we should be angry. We must pay attention to what we are allowing feed our hearts. Because it is going to fill us with calluses towards our brother and sister, or it is going to fill us with compassion. Is what you are filling yourself with growing your compassion, growing your Christ-likeness? You see, legalism leads us to having a condemning heart. It leads us to judgmentalism. We are so quick to see how everybody is wrong. 
and how terribly wrong they are. That is how our eyes see the world, but we only see it from other people. Like one of the, 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 the biggest things that we're doing today is uh, we're committing this logical fallacy called whataboutism. You know about whataboutism? Whataboutism is this technique where somebody shows you something uh, about the person you like and what they've done wrong, and instead of dealing with it, you say, well, your guy did it wrong too. Well, is it wrong? <laughs> if it's wrong, then we need to deal with it. It doesn't matter that we now have two people that did it. Whataboutism is a, is a way that we say, not me, just you. But that is a callousing that is happening all over the place. We are like Barney, who is walking all around that choir, listening to other people's voices, when in reality, his voice is the problem. That's how legalism works. But we must understand that that condemnation doesn't stop at others. Because Jesus describes in Matthew 7, 2, he says this, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you know what's being said there? He's saying God will use the same judgments that you have used towards people to evaluate your righteousness. So if, you're, if you want to play whataboutism, He's going to say, well, what about you? What about you? You said gossip was wrong, but did you gossip? You said harboring hatred in your heart was, was wrong, but did you harbor hatred in your heart? You said sexual immorality is wrong, but did you commit sexual immorality? You see, everything that we judge reveals that we know there's a moral order. And we have not followed it. So the condemnation that gives birth in a legalistic heart will come back. There is no hope in ladders or scales because the Bible knows our hearts. And what does it say about our true condition? Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous. No, not one. If no one is righteous then we cannot find ourselves succeeding at legalism. Legalism will only condemn us. Who can stand before their own judgments? I mean, I, I, if I were just given one day of the things I gave moral judgments towards other people and, and had to hear them myself, sometimes my wife does this for me, it's crushing. It's crushing. How much worse will it be when the record is absolutely right? But life with Jesus is about compassion. Life with Jesus is about compassion. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. Jesus is compassionate. Look at how great his compassion in verse 5, he looks at these Pharisees, and he is angry, but he is also so grieved at their hardness of heart. Do you realize that Jesus, even in his anger at their hardness of heart, still weeps for them? He still 
loves them. He still desires their hard-heartedness to turn into soft flesh and compassion. He loves even those who hate him. He loves even those who plot against him. More than that, he knows he's being plotted against if he heals this man. He knows that these people will bring a charge of Sabbath breaker and a death penalty if he heals this man. He knows that beforehand, and yet what does he do for the man? He says, stretch out your hand. Jesus healed the man at the cost of his life. This is the gospel. Jesus takes our condemnation and gives us his compassion. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you don't need the ladder. You don't need the scales. Because in Jesus, now there is no condemnation. You have him. So life with Jesus is about relationship before rules. Life with Jesus is about pursuing his presence instead of policing other people. Life with Jesus is about compassion replacing condemnation. Whereas legalism says, earn it. Life with Jesus says, receive it. Friend, have you received Jesus? He says to us in the Gospel of John, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Receive Jesus, and you are saved. Amen?